You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence. Uh, it's good to see everyone. I'm going to ask you to take a seat. I appreciate it. Uh, amen. Welcome. So, we are glad that you guys had decided to make us a part of your week. Glad you're here. Welcome to Providence Community Church. As we say every single week, we are a people formed around a single vision, and that's to make the gospel of Jesus Christ unignorable in our city. And it's to that end, with that aim, every single week we open up the Word of God because we believe that it equips us with everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Amen. So, with that in mind, uh, we are in a series called Life Together. We are walking through the back half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and discussing the unity of the church and who God has called us to be as his body. And so our text today will be found uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 22. This is kind of a part two of last week, so we'll be covering the same text. Uh, but we're going to read together out of Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have some hardback black ones in the seat pockets uh, below the seat in front of you. You can grab one of those and follow along. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that as a gift uh, for you. So once again, Ephesians 5, verse 22, if you are willing and able this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we are going to read together. Okay, Ephesians 5, 22, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So glad that you're here, especially if it's your first time. I just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here. And uh, I get the opportunity and the privilege to talk on part two of what Corey mentioned last week. So we kind of broke up Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 in two sermons. Corey focused on the form of marriage or what's the structure of it. So he went back to Genesis because there's really no way to understand Paul's admonition here to husbands and wives directly unless you understand the actual structure and form of marriage all the way back from creation. And Paul's kind of assuming that. We know this because he actually quotes Genesis uh, in in verse number 32. He actually quotes back from what was said by Moses about the beginning of all creation. And so we know that he's assuming this understanding And I think that in our day and age, it's unwise to assume any understanding. Let's go ahead and run back and talk about what is it that God has said about marriage. And so I've got a ton to do this morning, lots of ground to cover. I know you're stoked about it, uh, especially the ladies, you know. Uh, You're stoked about this sermon. This guy gets to get up here and talk about submission, okay? Just don't put me in a submission hold later outside. 
if you don't appreciate it. But I think it's going to be good. I really do. All jokes aside, God's word is true. It's, it's a blessing. There's life here. And so that's kind of the starting line for all of us is let's say that we believe that God who created the universe knows what he's talking about and that he can lead us into all life in our marriages. Okay, a couple things before I pray, though. Um, Corey mentioned this, and I think it's important to mention. If you're a single temptation, check out, right? It's like, I don't really have anything. This isn't about me. I got my own life, uh, and, and I don't really have to apply this yet. And I just want to remind you of something. Uh, this is actually written by a single guy. <laughs> Paul the Apostle is a single man, an unmarried man writing this. Therefore, what we need to take from this is that it's important. If it was important enough to Paul to write it, it's important enough for us to, to hear it and to listen to it. Whether we're going to apply that in the future or whether we're going to apply that in community through the way that we encourage one another, Paul was a single man, and so I'd encourage you to kind of lean in. The other, the other thing I want to mention is for Providence, we have a ton of young families, and so we have a ton of, ton of young marrieds. And here's what tends to happen as you uh, approach your life and marriage. Um, after you have the little, the little ones and they start to I- infiltrate your life with the, all of the goodness that they bring and then also all of the tiny sins— that they bring into the, into the life, um, a lot of attention gets put there, a lot of time gets put there, and rightfully so. I mean, it's absolutely necessary, but here's the danger, is that at times what starts to usurp your marital relationship is your, your parental relationship with your kids, and soon all of that love that, that you were putting forth towards your spouse is now completely consumed into the child. And here's the thing, I don't know the silver bullet on how to fix that apart from saying, that children are welcomed into the loving covenantal relationship that was there before they ever existed. And if you don't focus on that, if we don't focus on the priority that marriage brings and the, and the priority for both husband and wife to maintain that healthy bond, that children won't be welcomed into anything that is healthy. And then in all of your love for your kids will end up doing more harm than good. Does that make sense? And so there's a reason Paul starts with husbands and wives, and then in in chapter 6, he's going to then talk about kids. It's because if we don't focus on the actual marital relationship, then what are we welcoming the kids into? Okay, so so it's important, and it should be prioritized. And this morning, here's what I want to be. I want to be a pastor who is helpful. I want to be helpful in the way that I preach this. Now, I want to, to give you, to be honest about that. Sometimes helpful stings. Sometimes helpful is tough to hear, but I want to be helpful. And I want to be helpful because I think that Paul's words here are very helpful because the Bible's true. And so before we jump in, let's pray and let's ask the Spirit to help us to hear the wisdom from Paul. And more than that, let's ask that God would help us to hear the wisdom from him. Amen? If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. God, we love you. We're so grateful for your word. We confess to you that we would rather run nowhere else. We don't want to run anywhere else except to your word for truth because... Man's opinions, although they seem wise, they end up leading to destruction. And so we just, we run to your word. We run to you for truth this morning. Holy Spirit, would you now open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears. I pray for every married couple in the room. Would this be a blessing to them that we might grow in our maturity and in our love one to another. That our kids would be blessed by that. I pray for every single unmarried person in the room. That they would hear this and it would be life even unto them. We could apply it together as your body. We trust you, Lord. And most of all, I pray that as your word says that marriages display the mystery of the gospel, I pray that we would do that, my God. Help us to be reminded that our marriages are about more than just us. And in so doing, may our lives shine gloriously to the world around us. We trust you and we love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter number 5 starting in verse 22. So there's two admonitions. I use this in every wedding that I do. 
and I actually read this entire text, and I, I give a charge each to the husband and to the wife in front of all their family and friends. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the, that's the command. That's the admonition from Paul. And then he looks to the husband. Husband, love your wives even as Christ has loved the church. So there's a word picture going on here that Paul is using, and he's using a word picture of Christ's love for the church should be the husband's love for his wife, and that the church's submission to that love, response to that love, is meant to be the wife's response to her husband. Now, I want to mention this because I think this is important, and, and we have to make sure that we know what we're talking about. We are talking about marriage, not every single function of all of human life. We're talking about a context, the marital covenant. What is the marital covenant? A willful and sacred relationship that is entered into by one man and one woman under the authority of God. That's what marriage is, according to the scriptures. So you have one man and one woman willfully entering a covenant with one another under God's authority, not any man's authority. And it's sacred. Number two, there are operative roles that God has laid out. Corey mentioned these, but I have to mention them in order for us to understand. That leading the way in fulfilling God's command in Genesis to the, for the cultural mandate is the husband's responsibility. And that there's a complementary helpmate role fulfilling God's command that is the wives. This is why he says they need to, that Eve was created to be a helpmate fit for Adam. And Corey said this, and that we need each other. That we're dependent on one another in order to fulfill God's command. We know this because God said everything in all creation was good except one thing. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he's not going to be able to do what it is that I've called him to do. It says that Adam looked at all creation, all the animals, and he looked for a helpmate fit for him. None of them were fit for him. And God said it is good that Eve might be created, that they might go forth and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. The cultural mandate be fulfilled. Now, the reason we started there last week is because we've got to lay the foundation. It's impossible to understand or apply Paul's admonition unless we functionally know where it starts. Now, what am I talking about this morning? Functional behavior. Love is the responsibility of the husband. Submission is given to the wife here. Now, I want to mention this. Does that mean that husbands are only called to love? That's all they're going to do? Of course not, right? Husbands are going to do a myriad of different things and act in a myriad of different ways in order to keep a healthy marriage. Paul's not saying all you got to do is love and, you know, just singing the Beatles to us. Of course you're going to do more than that. How about this one? Wives, is, is your whole entire marriage summed up and all you're going to do is submit, nothing else? Of course not. You're going to do a myriad of different things, a million different things in order for this marriage to be healthy, in order for your family to function. But there's a reason that Paul prioritizes these words for the covenant to flourish, and that's what we need to talk about. So let's start with this. What is submission? Submission is the wife's willing and joyful response to her husband's loving Christ-like leadership in the home. Now, I want to make this case. Of course, this text is not for calling for women to submit to all men generally everywhere. Are we catching that? He says, you need to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay? The text says, it's not encompassing all of the roles that wives are going to play in all of their lives. Some women are going to be mothers. Some are going to be teachers. Some are going to be friends, mentors, counselors, nurses, architects. This is about your marriage. This is about your relationship with your covenantal spouse. Okay? And sometimes we let ourselves get clouded. We, got, we get all sorts of off the rails because we're thinking about every other guy that we ever, ever come across. And can we all agree that not every other man that you ever come across is worthy of your respect and honor? Hopefully you get that. This is about the marriage. And I can't stress this enough. The, this biblical foundation is essential. So in the context of the marriage, the wife is called to willfully and joyfully respond to the husband's Christ-like leadership in the home. Now, what do I mean by leadership? By leadership, I mean that the husband is called to godly 
humble initiative, leading their families toward a God-glorifying and a God-honoring life together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The initiative that the husbands are called to take is to lead their families to fulfill the cultural mandate that is given by God to go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it in the name and the authority that God has bestowed upon them and them alone. Now, here's what I want to say. You know, we didn't mention this last week, but it's important to mention. The cultural mandate in Genesis 1, it has a parallel in the New Testament. It's called the Great Commission. It's why you see that there's this difference where Paul starts to say that he's grateful that he has the gift of singleness so that he can devote himself to what? To the Great Commission of making disciples. Now, why do I say there's a parallel? Because in the same way that in Genesis chapter 1, it says, go be fruitful, multiply in all the earth. Jesus then, after all authority is given unto him, he he tells the disciples, go into all the earth, preach the gospel to all creation and make disciples. Go be fruitful and multiply and make disciples. So we're not only called as parents to be making tiny disciples by birthing them and then then parenting them, but that there's a newborn experience that comes through spiritual parents so that disciples are made and the earth is covered with God's glory like the waters cover the sea. So you guys see that? And this is why Paul could say that he could be a spiritual father without having his spouse in the picture because he was recognizing this gift of singleness married unto his groom Jesus that he was making disciples and that that was fulfilling the cultural mandate. But it's always in the covenant of marriage. You get this? Even singleness is in the covenant of marriage to Jesus, your groom. Okay. Now, marriages have been designed by God as exclusive covenantal relationships, one man, one woman, through which God intends to display his glory to the ends of the earth. This is why at Providence we talk about parenting and we talk about it in terms of disciple-making because these two texts go together, right? Cultural mandate and great commission. Now, the Christians have not been left out to dry on this. It's not like God gave us the cultural mandate, he gave us the great commission, and then he didn't tell us how to function in our marriages. That's why Paul is giving us direct admonitions here. So submission, wives, it looks like this. It looks like responding to your husband saying, it delights my heart when my husband steps into his God-given calling for our family and he leads us to know, worship, and obey Jesus together. That's what it looks like. It's that disposition that comes with, I want that, I like that. Now, I want to say this, the spirit-empowered disposition is not your default. And I'm not saying that because I know you and I'm not saying that because I'm angry. I'm saying that because you're human. I'm saying that because I've read what the Bible says about Genesis chapter 3, that after sin enters the world, that we all have a new disposition, and it's for ourselves. That's both Adam and Eve. The scripture says that in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve first fall, that Eve eats first and is deceived by the serpent, and Adam is standing by and eats as well. And then it says when God shows up in the garden, guess who God is trying to address about the sin? Even though Eve ate first and was deceived by the serpent, God shows up and says, Adam, where art thou? He's looking for Adam. Why? Well, it's the idea of headship for the very first time in Scripture. But the idea is that Adam, even though Eve may have sinned first, Adam and his responsibility, the Scriptures say in Romans chapter number 5, sin came into the world through one man. How did sin come into the world? Through Eve? Through Adam. Because in his responsibility, he was given the command by God before Eve was ever created, and he did not communicate that, nor protect his wife, nor care for her enough to step in between her and the serpent and say no more. Now, what do we have in Jesus Christ? The exact opposite of this, right? He steps in between his bride and the serpent and says no more. He takes the bite, but the bite does not kill him. It wounds his heel, but the serpent's head is crushed. You guys get this whole dynamic that's happening here? So the idea of headship in Scripture is that until Adam 
or I'm sorry, until Christ, Adam was our federal head. This is why Paul says, in Adam, all die. All of us were born in Adam. But now Christ, through Christ, we have a new federal head that in Christ all have come alive again. That now all the sin that came from Adam does not on us because Christ has absolved it on the cross. That now through Christ, our federal head and our groom, listen to me, men and women in the room, we are a bride first together. And our groom, our federal head is Jesus Christ. Incredible. Now, why do I say that? I say that because what Paul's saying here when he talks to husbands and wives is that our roles in marriage is redemptive. The joyful response of wives to their husbands who lead underneath God's ultimate authority is a celebration of the redemption that was won by Jesus on the cross to atone for the failure of the leadership that Adam exhibited in the garden. So now, by God's grace, men and women can imperfectly, okay, imperfectly, but truly walk as they were originally created to walk, to mirror God's plan. Now, I want to say it's not going to come naturally, but supernatural. Your firstborn nature, because of the fall, is going to be, ladies, to be contrary to your husbands. This is what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3. It says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, and he will rule over you. That sounds pleasant. (laughs) What does this mean? Now, we know that this is evident not just in homes but in history books. What happens is that there's not a willful disposition to joyfully receive any leadership from your husband. And what happens is that men react and respond to that, overreact and overrespond to that through overbearing, domineering, abusive acts. And this has happened since the beginning of time. Paul's coming in to say that there's another way in Christ. And it looks like this kind of loving, sacrificial leadership and this welcoming of that loving, sacrificial leadership that he calls submission. The gospel offers us this way. Now, ladies, why does it say that we should? Su- why does it say you should submit as to the Lord? Anybody? Does that, that make you cringe a little? I'm sure. This is not a call to deify your husband. The text is doing exactly what Paul does in Colossians when he likens your job and he says that you should work your job as unto the Lord, not your boss. So what he's saying is, ladies, don't submit ultimately to your husband because he's always trustworthy because he won't be. Submit to your husband because you trust God who is overarchingly in authority over him. Have you ever wondered why Paul's so adamant about not being unequally yoked? Have you ever wondered that? Is he just a jerk? Anybody think that? But I love them. I want to marry them. They're kind of Christian. I can make them Christian. Ladies, you're like, he's, he's nice, he's kind, he doesn't love Jesus, but he loves me, and that's all I need. And you might think, okay, and and, and you think that Paul's being a jerk. Let me tell you why Paul is about not being unequally yoked. Because if one spouse submits to the authority of Christ and the other only submits to their own authority, it's a train wreck as the result. Sadly, women are often almost always the victims of this. Because when there's no authority but the human authority in the house, might always makes right. And biologically, that means the man is going to try and rule over you. So Paul's trying to protect the women by saying, don't be unequally yoked. Now, don't get me wrong here. There is, a, there is an opposite side to this, which is the spirit of Jezebel in the Old Testament, where if you marry someone, guys, because she's hot, but not because she loves Jesus, that that also can lead your heart away from God. But what I've seen, if you read history books, is a lot of times, if the man doesn't trust and submit to the authority of God, what you see is a lot of abuse. Paul's trying to protect us from heartache. Now, here's what I want to say before I get into the men. In my experience, I've never met a Christian husband that set up a meeting with me and said, Court, I can't deal with this anymore. All this respect my wife is showing me is getting out of hand. She keeps encouraging me and welcoming my leadership in the home. 
Like every day she treats me like I'm someone that's worthy of listening to. She like takes me seriously and stuff and I'm like, stop, this is too much. She keeps telling the kids that to ask me questions. I mean, what is this? If she doesn't publicly insult me soon, I'm out, I'm done. I've never heard that. I've never had that conversation. But in order for us to really understand this kind of welcoming disposition, this, this idea of submission, we gotta, you have to understand what, God, what Paul then says through the word of God to the husband. So let's read that briefly. So if he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same ways husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself. I want to roll through this quickly only because of the sake of time, but this kind of loving leadership has a number of elements here. Number one, it mirrors Christ. So therefore, when you start asking yourself about how much you should love men, the answer is you don't have an end because Christ doesn't have an end. I always say this in weddings and in marriages. I charge the man and I say, love her, love her through this, love her through this, love her through this. And then the moment that you realize, you know what, I don't think I could do it anymore, remind yourself of Christ's love for you, ask for help and love her again in the morning. Christ-like love is a sacrificial, self-denying love, husbands, a love that casts yourself on the altar of sacrifice for the good of your wife, no matter what. Running towards the, the danger. I always joke about it. When something goes bump in the night, you don't give the flashlight to your wife and say, good luck. You know, and that's true physically and spiritually. You are loving her in a substitutionary fashion, meaning you in her place when pain's involved, you in her place when suffering's involved. As much as is humanly possible, that's your role. This kind of love is a sanctifying love, a love that promotes and cultivates the spiritual maturity of your wife. You care about her holiness and not in a legalistic way. You care about her holiness that you would be willing to pray to fast for her. A love that nourishes, provides, and sustains for the spiritual health of your wife. That you're living your life in such a way that you know the way that you speak, the way that you act, the way that you live should be nourishing to her. A love that cherishes, that means the kind of love that prizes and protects your wife as a gift from God. Cherishes means like the most precious thing that you could ever imagine, something like a chalice. This is Peter's understanding of the, the weaker vessel. It means the indispensable vessel, the, the vessel that's supposed to be frail in its, in its essence, not because women are frail, because my gosh, have you ever seen a woman give birth? It's talking about beauty. It's talking about the need of protection. He's talking about what you care about, what you cherish, what you guard. When you go to the Louvre, the Louvre in Paris, you don't go in there and there's just all of these great nat natural or beautiful artifacts that don't have any security around them. I don't care if you've seen Tom Hanks steal stuff from it. That doesn't happen, okay? Lastly, it's a unifying love, a love that binds a married couple together in spiritual oneness. And I could spend a lot of time on this and I think it would be worth doing, but maybe we can do it at another venue for the men, but the call for husbands to love their wives like Christ could be the most daunting of all of the calls in the New Testament. What a call. Because it's not just that you're called to have a single-hearted devotion to Christ. It's now been given that this single-hearted devotion to Christ has to then rebound onto another person and another person that you have been called uniquely to steward that relationship, and then it's on you.
Now, in my experience, I've, again, not met a Christian woman who's unwilling to submit to this kind of husband. I've met Christian women who have been abused, and maybe that's some of you that are hearing me. I've met Christian women who have been hurt. I've met Christian women who have been mistreated and ultimately unloved by their husbands who bear the name of Christ but don't submit to his lordship or follow his way. I have, I have met that woman. But I've never met the woman who's been unwilling to submit to this kind of Christian leadership. Like no woman's ever walked into my office and said, Court, you got to reach out to my husband. I'm sick of this confident, courageous, loving leadership he's been exhibiting. Like he keeps waking up early to read the Bible. I'm like, cut it out, you know, like get out of the room. He's been considerate. He's been thoughtful. He's been communicative to me. I mean, gross, right? He got up and got the kids dressed this Sunday for church, got them in the car, had coffee ready for me. I was like, please let me do all that. Volunteered to coach our son's team last week, offered to take my daughter with him so that she could go to women's meeting. And I was like, no, I'd rather do all those things. I was venting to him about the hard day that I had, and then he actually muted the TV and he looked me in my eyes, and I was like, whoa, too much. Please keep ignoring me. He looked at me and listened to me, and if that wasn't bad enough, then he grabbed my hands and he was willing to pray for me, and I was almost done at that point, right? If he doesn't yell at me, yell at the kids, crack open a beer and binge Netflix pretty soon, I'm going to just move on from him. I've never had that conversation in my life. But I have had women in my office crying because they attended gathering alone for the last six weeks and they felt like giving up because their husbands wouldn't come. I've also heard Christian men wonder aloud and bemoan the fact that their wives are reticent to respect their leadership, but they spend little time considering whether their leadership looks anything like Jesus. Men, I want to say the same thing that I said to the women. This is not going to come naturally to you. Your firstborn nature is to be spiritually and relationally complacent, just like your father Adam. You're not going to want to take the initiative to cultivate and to lead your wife and children. You're also going to want to respond to your wife's nudging you about your failure, and, and you're going to want to be overbearing, or you're going to become passively timid and just sh- become a shell of yourself. But the man's called to mirror Christ, which means that this call is not contingent on your love being received with open arms always. Christ's love is relentless, long-suffering, and covenantal, and that's what your love's called to be like. Now, Here's what I want to do, and I don't have tons of time, but I want to talk a little bit about the alternative because I know that there's some of us that might be saying, just like our culture says right now, um, why do we have to have categories, you know? Like, why do we have to have these roles? Let's just operate in default mode. Isn't that preferable? I mean, we can't we just really, like, feel it out and figure it out on the fly? And here's what I want to say, and I want to say this in love. That's a fantasy. That's not reality you will eventually create functional roles. The question is not whether or not your marriage has roles, it's just a matter of which ones are they. You will create functional roles. The question is, is do they work, are they God-honoring, and actually do they lead to life? Advocating for letting default mode to be our guide is like advocating for whitewater rafting without paddles. It's like, can we just figure it out on the way? No, unless you want destruction. The Bible says the way that is right in man's eyes leads to destruction. The way that it is right in man's eyes always leads to self-gratification, not servanthood. Paul says marriages should look like servanthood, meaning the default can't be what we allow. The Bible has a proposition for this. They call it the old self. Now, I want to say this. Like, creation itself cries out for this. Have you ever watched uh, Planet Earth or something? You ever seen the Amazon rainforest? Like, from 30,000 feet, some of the most majestic stuff you've ever seen, right? It's absolutely beautiful. The waterfalls. I mean, the landscape. You're just, it's unbelievable. 
And then Planet Earth does what what pl only Planet Earth can do. They bring these cameras in and they bring you down boots on the ground. And then you realize the Amazon rainforest might be the most terrifying place on Earth. Anybody? It's like there's anacondas that will eat your whole body. All of you, even all of me. I'm a big guy, could swallow me whole, and it just, you know, might need another snack. Piranha that live there. Like we watch piranha, you know, on a screen. A piranha will eat your flesh. That's terrifying. There's trees in the Amazon that, like, if you were to need to use the bathroom, I'm not kidding, you can look this up, and you use the bathroom too near to the tree, it will poison you because it's angry at you, as is fair, I guess, because you are using the restroom on it. The default of the Amazon, even though from 30,000 feet it looks beautiful, the default of the Amazon is to kill inhabitants. That's what its default is. We know this because creation itself is under a curse. All you got to do is try to build your life there, and you'll realize just how bad it can get. Your lawn operates the same way, right? Your front yard's beautiful. You know why it's beautiful? Because someone decided to tend to it. If you decide that you're just going to let your lawn go to default mode, you're going to like play out the real-life Jumanji on the way to the car with the kids next week. You know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. Your default mode from birth as an image bearer of God is beset by sin, which means that simultaneously you are gloriously beautiful because you're made in the image of God, and you have a self-destruct button inherently within you that's after you. So from 30,000 feet, human beings, and this is what we try to do with our marriages, human beings are a gift, they're, they're amazing, they're great. Get down in the boots on the ground, meaning you get into your own heart and you're like, oh my gosh, everything here is leveraged to kill me. That's true, that's what the Bible says. So if you just accept default mode in your marriage, you're going to see, listen to me, you're going to see your spouse as just another cog in the wheel for your own desires. Now here's the, here's the downfall. If that's true, they see you the same way which means the rest of your marriage is going to be uniquely and manipulatively trying to figure out how to make your spouse make, more mu make much of you. And that's why it leads to, to real difficulty and destruction. Hear me on this. Christians can do this. You can even use the Bible to get your spouse to make much of you. Because we have this difficult issue with sin that no one can handle but Christ. Every married couple has to grapple with this reality. How do we obey the commands of God with another beautiful image bearer, but those image bearers are beset by sin. And here's my contention. It's that you have roles you are going to fall into naturally, or you can obey the scriptures which say, hey, this might feel like it's going against the grain, but it's life. Now, I think that God has an advantage here that maybe we need to listen to as to why we might want to take his advice. Number one, God created you. So if you're going to operate heavy machinery without hurting yourself, it's always wise to trust the engineer. Are you catching me? God made you. You didn't make yourself. So if you're asking yourself, how should I best function in this, maybe go to the operator's manual and figure out what the engineer said. That's what the Bible is. Number two, God's perfect and holy. He's not beset by sinful, selfish tendencies. So rather than trusting the blind man handling the road map on a road trip, maybe we should give the wheel to the only guy in the car that can see, which is God. What do I mean by that? All of us in our relationships, we have our own weird, manipulative, like, we don't even want to have them, but they're, they're selfish tendencies. You guys know what I'm talking about. You can love your husband so much, but then there's that moment where you're like, I don't want to eat where he wants to eat. How can I get this done? Anybody else has happened, whether you want it to happen or not. Now, you're, some of you are very, you know, very early married. You're like, I would never do that. Just give it like seven hours. You will. Get hungry enough. You will. God's the only one who stands outside of that and says, here's what's true. Here's what's life-giving. 
In every, in every area that I have seen the marriage roles were reversed, I have always seen one of two things. I've either seen a wife who's overwhelmed and resentful because her husband is so disengaged and absent that it just makes her want to quit, or I've seen a husband that's so unmotivated that he just passively is letting life wash over him. But with God's design, what I see is a complementary covenantal relationship where husband and wife stand shoulder to shoulder with distinct roles and a unified desire to please God as their sole aim. And graciously, what the result of this is, is life. It's life. Now, how do Christians get to the place, though, and I think we need to mention this because it's, it's unwise not to, how do Christians get to the place where even though they believe all the things that I just said, they can still find themselves mirroring the worst? How do they find themselves in places where they're like in a room with no doors, you know? They're looking for a way out and there's nowhere to go. Well, what we know is that the gospel is a message that not just forgives you of your sin, but the gospel is a message that tells us that God is interested in fundamentally transforming us at our core. That God not only saves us and forgives us, pardons us of what has been done, but then he looks forward and says, and I'm going to make you a whole new creation. Marriage is the primary human relationship through which that process happens. And many of us only have watched, we watch too many Disney movies to think that marriage is only about like romantic love, not about holiness. God desires through marriage to make you holy more than to make you happy. And I'm not saying he's not gonna, there's not going to be happiness. What I'm saying is that the priority is holiness, not happiness. Happiness is the byproduct of holiness. And sometimes, listen to me, sometimes holiness first leads to difficulty and then it leads to joy. Happiness is a fleeting pursuit that sometimes you feel you know, like a roller coaster and then you get off and it's still hot outside. But joy is deep. So at its best, a loving covenant of marriage is marked by Christ's likeness through this long-term active repentance. Christian marriages aren't perfect. You don't wake up going, I just want to submit to you, husband. And your husband makes you coffee and says, look how I've loved you. This is not real. Real Christian marriage is recognizing how much that's not you. And then through long-term active repentance to God, not particularly sorries to each other, repentance to God and then to each other, it leads to this kind of submission to God first and then there's a function of the roles. If we don't submit to God first, then the function of the roles are backwards. And what I have seen as a pastor is that at its worst, the marital covenant, even with Christians, is, a, is constant tension, regular combat, abuse, or tragic indifference. And here's what I've seen happen. We inevitably run into problems in our marriage, okay? Because why? Because you put two sinners in a house and you said, make it work. That's why. And then we respond to that feeling of feeling threatened whenever your spouse sins by trying to be self-protective and self-preserving. It's a natural, not, it's a firstborn, not reborn, a firstborn reaction. I got to figure this out, get them out. It's a threat. In other words, what happens is we focus on how we are right, we've been wronged, and then inevitably we have to blame somebody. We blame our spouse, and if that goes poorly, this is why sometimes people will blame God. Why did you send this woman to me? She's trouble. Why did you let me marry this man? This is how it looks. Husbands like, my wife doesn't submit to me. My wife nags me. My wife doesn't listen to me. My wife doesn't respect me. You can talk all you want, court. That's not what happens. Boots on the ground at my house. And here's what I'll say. Maybe all that's true. But if I had to guess, is it possible that you are part of the problem? Is it possible she nags you because you're so self-consumed with your own hobbies and downtime that she feels like she's parenting alone? Is it possible she isn't keen on listening to your wisdom or respecting your leadership because you're only present in her life long enough to bark out your commands? 
You're not prayerful, you're not considerate, you're not thoughtful, you're not kind, you're not gracious, you're not active, you're not engaged, you're not encouraging, you're not biblically wise, and then you say, why didn't she respect me? Now, I know you aren't keen on hearing that, and listen, me either, I'm talking to myself, but listen to me, I'm telling you the truth. I've heard this from wives, wives, my husband's disengaged, he's not present when I'm home, he cares about his car more than he cares about me, he doesn't spend any time with the kids, I'm always dragging him to church, he sits on the couch with beer and expects me to do everything. And here's what I'll say, maybe that's all that's true. But if I had to guess, is it possible that you might be part of the problem? Is it possible he's disengaged because when, you try, when he tries to engage with you, you cut him off before he gets started? Is it possible he hasn't been affirmed by you in months? Is it possible that your words and actions have communicated that his presence in that household is only a nuisance, disrupting and muddying up what you have already have under control? You're not encouraging, uplifting, welcoming, eager to welcome his leadership. I mean, I know you're not keen on hearing that but I'm trying to offer the truth. You see, the madness of believing that we're entitled to all the benefits of healthy marital union without the personal responsibility and sacrifice that comes along with it is just that. It's craziness. It doesn't work. It's an inversion of the covenant. You see, the covenant says this, I vow this to you under God because he's called me to, irrespective of your response. And then there's the response from the spouse. I vow this to you under God, irrespective of your response. This is a covenantal vow before God that I make. An inversion of the covenant is you give me what you promise no matter what I do. See that? Those are different. You act how you're supposed to act no matter how I act. That's just not reality. Husbands, it's one thing to be nailing it on the loving leadership front and then to be disenchanted when your wife doesn't respect you. Now, this still doesn't preclude you from the obedience of God, but at least I get your beef. It's one, that's one thing. It's totally backwards when we have actively laid down our loving leadership that we're called to and then recoiled into selfishness and narcissism only to follow that up with complaints about her. That's trouble. Wives, it's one thing in regards to respect and delight of your husband's leadership that you would be frustrated when He's not engaging. And again, I'm not telling you that's an answer for you to just start railing on him. What I'm saying is at least that's understandable. But it's backwards when you actually undermine your husband's leadership through your words and your deeds, and then you follow that up with complaints. Listen, when we apply Ephesians 5 the same way that we apply all the rest of the Bible, there's life from that. And here's how you apply the rest of the Bible. Don't try to play the Holy Spirit in everyone else's life, but apply your role. The questions that we should ask is not so much, are they doing their job? But if something's going wrong, am I doing mine? Am I playing my part well? Am I honoring you, God? Husbands, ask that question before you start getting ready to call your buddy to go out for beers to complain about your spouse. Ask yourself the question, is there a reason that she's not submitting to my loving leadership? Maybe it's not all that loving and maybe it doesn't look like leadership. Wives, same thing. The question should not be, is my husband a schlub? You married him for a reason and maybe he was. But here's what I'll tell you is that inside of every man is the image of God and inside of them is something that's innate that they desire to be, especially if they're Christian. What you're saying is that you don't trust the spirit of God has made them new and now there's a desire. If they're a believer, are you saying the spirit's not in your husband, that he would want to lead and be engaged in that way? Ask what's actually going on. Now hear me on this. I'm not trying to make a case for abuse and I don't have a lot of time to continue on. Abuse happens. And I think we deal with that as it comes, and it needs to be dealt with biblically, and it needs to be dealt with honestly. But here's what I have experienced as a pastor is 98% of things that are going on is because we've become self-preservative. We've thought about us, and we don't actually want to ask ourselves, what's going on 
in the marriage that pertains to my behavior? And how can I repent, trust Jesus, and change? Well, I had about four more pages of notes, but I'm going to close anyway. And here's where I want to close. Christians do well when they say, and I think this should bring a lot of peace to you, where we sit currently is not believing that we have perfect marriages. Where we say is that we have a Savior, Christ the Lord, who heals, mends, restores. If everything that I've been saying is like, oh my gosh, we're, you know, all the alerts are going off in your head, and now there's a temptation to think, well, I need to push back against that. The answer is to say all the alerts are going off because you are a human being beset by sin. The power of sin's coming after you. And I want to say this because it's important to say, in the Bible, the first time that you see Satan show up is after a husband and a wife have been married. That's when Satan shows up in the garden. So if you're wondering why all the time you're attacked in your marriage, it's because it's the fundamental relational covenant that God gave human beings, and Satan hates it. He loves the idea of upending marriages because they are meant to glorify God. Verse 32 of chapter 5 says, this is the mystery of marriage, is that it reflects Christ and his church. It reflects the gospel. Meaning that your marriage, if you want to take one thing away from this morning, sometimes we get so preoccupied with marriage not giving us what we want out of it because we expect too much from it. The marriage covenant is not about you and it's not about me. It's about the glory of God. Ultimately, God brings us together to be a, a perfect picture, well, an imperfect picture of the gospel so that the whole world might see. Husbands like this, your love's supposed to reflect Christ's love, so when people meet Jesus, they think it looks like you. Or how about this? When your wife is getting closer to Jesus, she thinks, man, he looks like my husband, or my husband looks like him. But since we aren't perfect, I want to give you this opportunity. The opportunity is this. Let us run to Christ, who heals, who mends, who restores. He's the perfect groom. Guys, we aren't. So let's just go ahead and whew, let the air out of the room. Jesus is the perfect groom. Wives, if you're like, you know what? I'm not, I've not been living that. Okay, Jesus is the perfect Savior. He washes us with the water of the word. He forgives us. He heals us. He mends us. He restores us. And he welcomes us because he's a good groom. So I don't want to end this by saying, hey, let's all figure out our roles. What I want to say is we're all the bride right now. Where we sit, we sit as the bride. Let us come to the groom. Let us come to Christ and ask him, heal us change us, transform us, make us new again, that we might live not only in a way that reflects you, but in delight and joy. Because what I have found is that the most fruitful Christians operate out of joy. In any role, they operate out of joy. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Oh, Father, what a great and glorious text of Scripture. It not only cuts and it bites, but it also reminds us that you are all those things. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved us so well. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our Savior, washing us in the water of the word, sanctifying us, nourishing us. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. And I pray for those under the sound of my voice. Would you heal and mend our marriages? We sit before you as the bride. Heal and mend our marriages. Restore us. Make us new again. Challenge us where we need to be challenged, Lord. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. But God, do not leave us abandoned. Lift our eyes when we fail. Strengthen our knees whenever we are weary. Holy Spirit, come in now and make something glorious out of what 
may be imperfect and broken. And I pray now that we might leave out of here with joy because it's only in that joy that we might find the fruitfulness that you desire. We love and trust you, my King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.